Well, turn with me, please, to uh, Matthew chapter 19. As we continue in this wonderful gospel, we're actually going to be finishing this chapter next week. We won't finish it today, but I mean, segueing off of last week's sermon of Jesus welcoming the children into his presence and blessing them. I think it's appropriate that Matthew has shared with us now the next scene in his ministry, this scene with a, a rich young ruler, a young man of means who comes to Jesus. And as we begin, I mean, this young man clearly... From the context of the flow here, he must have witnessed what Jesus said to these parents and, and the children who are coming. This young man must have seen this, and he's coming to Jesus now asking for a gift. What must I do, Lord, to obtain this eternal life? I mean, we often find the same lesson or theme that is scattered across different books and genres in scripture, whenever we're studying the Bible faithfully, we will pick up a repeated pattern from time to time of themes across the scriptures. I mean, and this reinforces the truth of God's gospel in ways that remind us that his truth is always so in all circumstances. Whenever you see the same theme, the same lesson, the same truth repeated in different places of scripture, I think there's something important there. I mean, the interaction between Jesus and this wealthy young man, I mean, it teaches us the fundamental truth of the gospel that nothing we do can give us possession of what only Christ Jesus can grant. And eternal life in this text is the eluding question. And it's a question that haunts all of us. It's, it's part of the fundamental human condition. Is this all there is? Is there not something beyond the now, is there not an eternal destiny? There's something in us. I mean, we know innately that we have a part of our being that can never die like our physical body. Even the most, even the most ungodly pagan has an innate sense that there's something more than just this physical presence. And what happens when the physical body ceases? Does this, Im does this immaterial part of ourselves die with the material part of ourselves? I mean, innately, we all know without fully knowing why that the immaterial part of ourselves can and will live on. Whether you have pondered this question or not, we all agree, if, if, if posed this question, we all sense, you know, there's something innately in me I know will continue even when this body stops. The question we all ask and that we want an answer to is how? I mean, the question of eternity that's the theme here. And eternity is a theme that repeats throughout all of Scripture. And Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22, gives us the foundation for the answers. That's what we're going to look at today. It's the foundation for the answers to eternity. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And let's read Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. And then next week we will finish out this chapter. Now remember the scene here is that Jesus has just welcomed children into his presence and he's kind of scolded the disciples for daring to keep them from coming. And so now this young man witnesses this. Verse 16, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Verse 19, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Mm. Let's pray. Dear Father God in heaven, we pause at the reading of your word and we stand humbled because all of us desire eternity, yet we also in our self-sufficiency desire to earn it, to guarantee it, to somehow make it ours. But Lord, I thank you for the truth you share here that your son Jesus Christ teaches this young man, eternity is impossible apart from Christ. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us this morning. I I pray that those who are listening to these words would hear from you directly. And so, God, I pray that you would use your word, use this moment to teach us all something that we must know, to stir us to repentance, but to stir us to faithful obedience and humility even sacrifice, there's, there's a bit of sacrifice of our selfish pride expected here. But Lord, in our sin, we struggle. And in our sin, it's impossible. That's why we need you. So Lord, at this moment, have your way with us. Speak deeply into our hearts. Stir our souls. We ask this, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a seat. Let's take a look here at verse 16. Let's begin here. Matthew tells us, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? I mean, the scene of Jesus' ministry begins with the same approach that all of us take when we ask questions of the Lord. We want something, so we strive for what we must do to possess it. We're all guilty of this. I mean, possession seems to be the fundamental flaw here of this man's inquiry. I mean, parallel passages, if you're taking note, Matthew's account here in in chapter 19, there's parallel passages of this scene in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, and Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. And and we'll, we'll bounce back and forth from these, and I'll mention some of these parallel passages, because when we look at the three different accounts of this one scene, we get a few more details that help us see what's happening. These parallel passages to Matthew's account show us the same flaw. I mean, Luke's account describes this young man as a ruler. That's where we get the term, the rich young ruler. It's from, it's from Luke's account. Here in Matthew, he's just a young man. But this young ruler most likely was in a place of authority in the local synagogue. And where Jesus was here, he was in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That's what Matthew 19 verse 1 tells us. 
And, it, and this area is described as somewhere between Samaria and Galilee. That's Luke's account, chapter 17. So this, this young man, he's wealthy for sure. He, this young wealthy man of the synagogue seems to be eager to learn from the teacher. That's what he calls him. He wants to learn from Jesus how to obtain this eternal destiny. I mean, he comes with knowledge of the Mosaic law, clearly. I mean, we see this in verse 18 here in Matthew 19, that, that the, the Mosaic law that is centered on how to do, how to obey, since the Mosaic law is designed to lead to action, particularly moral action. Even when you speak to those of the Jewish tradition today, they say the Mosaic law really is fundamentally a moral law. And so this young man is seeking some kind of a moral to-do list. He wants to be a better man. He wants to be a good man so that he can obtain eternity. That's fundamentally what we see here. Now, Mark's account tells us even more so. See, Matthew's account just says this man comes up to Jesus, but Mark's account in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, says that he ran up and knelt before him. Much different position. I mean, since he possesses great wealth, and, and clearly if he's a religious leader in the synagogue, he possesses great religious knowledge. And he also has great authority. Perhaps this young man comes to Jesus hoping to justify his own piety. I mean, perhaps he comes seeking to possess one more thing. And he wants something else. He wants to, notice the words, he wants to have eternal life. That's words of possession. Just like anything else that he owns. I mean, yet there seems to be a genuine humility in him as well. I mean, it's a sense that he needs more than this material possessions that he has and his prestigious position of knowledge and authority are not enough. So he, the question he asks here reveals his intent. What good deed must I do. He's looking for something more. I mean, this type of question plagues us. It plagues all of the human spirit, doesn't it? We, we often struggle with our depravity. We struggle with our lack of merit before a holy God. I mean, this young man knelt before the Son of God and asked what good he must do, just as all of us do in our prayers, if we're honest. I mean, our our free will brothers and sisters never seem to struggle with the works of righteousness that this young man seems to propose to Jesus. I mean, they say, of course, we all must do something in our quest for salvation. Our free will brother says God does his part and we must do our part as if somehow it's equal. But yet notice what Jesus' response is to this young man of privilege. Look here in verse 17. And this is Jesus' response. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. I mean, this young man, he's of means and he's of authority. He asks specifically about good works, specifically the kind which have the power and the merit to obtain something, to obtain eternal life with God. Yet at the heart of this man's question is also an urgency. He did not become wealthy at such a young age by waiting for investments to mature. 
He either inherited his wealth or made money and collected possessions quickly with the right business ventures. Something happened here. He's a young man of means. He seems not accustomed to waiting. Anybody know someone like that? I mean, in this room, we'll confess, I'm that way. I can't wait. No one's going to confess. Oh, Carla's, she's honest. She can't wait. Lisa sometimes. We're all guilty of that, aren't we? Lack of patience seems to be the sin of most of our, our problems. If we would just slow down and wait and be patient, something better might come. Just a little sidetrack there. I mean, Jesus' reply is both rhetorical, but it's also compassionate. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? I mean, Jesus knows who this young man truly is. I mean, every witness of this encounter who's standing there knows who he is. I mean, this young ruler, this young man is well-educated in the Mosaic law. He rose to authority in the local synagogue. He's a man of privilege. He must have done something right. I mean, the, the question and the reply here dances around the obvious answer. If the power for eternal life lies completely in doing good things, the ready explanation is evident in the Mosaic law that he holds so dear. I mean, the young man knew what to do and what not to do, yet he's coming to Jesus. But notice how Jesus responds. There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. I mean, the good is that which is morally upright, completely satisfactory. This young man saw, again, a moral righteousness as his means to eternal life or salvation. I mean, Jesus, his reply here points out the obvious truth that only one is good. Certainly this young man would have known that, that the only one who is good is God himself. Only God, even further, is satisfactory. Man is not satisfactory. I mean, God alone is good in his, in his essential and in his uncreated goodness. Do you all realize that God is so good, he is uncreated goodness? I'm going to let that sink in for a second. You're going to wake up in the middle of the night and say, what in the world was Pastor Bryant saying? Uncreated goodness. That's who God is. I mean, God alone is good in his essence, which is simply and without complexity. God is not complex in his goodness. When we say that God is simple, that's another theological idea of God. The simplicity of God. He's complete. He's not complex. What makes God complex is us. (laughs) That makes him eternally and perfectly good. That's I mean... I can go on and on here. Think about this. At the same time, God's goodness is so simple that he's united with his own nature and he is unchanging. His good is unchanging. God's good does not waver. Jesus is reminding this young man who certainly should have known these truths. The very definition of perfect goodness is that the standard of righteousness that this young man looks for, the perfect goodness is righteousness that never errs. God then is, here's the word, immutable. 
His goodness is immutable, meaning that he never changes. His goodness never changes. That's the truth. That's why Jesus is saying there is only one who is good. No matter how good this young man is, he will change. He will fall. He will fluctuate. God never does. And so Jesus' words to this young man actually look to his salvation. Here's the compassionate part. He says, keep the commandments. I mean, this young man certainly knows how to keep the commandments of Moses, doesn't he? He should. He's in a high position of authority. But can he keep God's law faithfully? Can he keep God's law with perfection, without error? I mean, this young synagogue ruler certainly thought he did. His piety was self-defined, and it was derived from his moral actions of keeping the law. I mean, but notice that Jesus changes the verb here, okay? The young man asked what he could have. What must I do to have eternal life? Jesus, in his response, changes the verb. He says his direct response is to enter eternal life. Jesus doesn't reply to him and say, Here's what you must do to have. He says, here's what you must do to enter. Notice the difference? So eternal life from Jesus seems to be less something to possess and more something like a journey to enter. All right? Jesus takes this man's question as he, you can imagine this young man is like coming to Jesus like an online shopping spree. We're entering into that season, folks. You realize that Amazon has already started their Amazon days, which is taking over all other types of retail. Some of y'all have already already done that. I guarantee it. You've already started your Christmas shopping. That's what this man was doing. It's it's like he's he's going through the list of what he can buy, what he can possess. Jesus takes this inquiry from something that the young man can possess and have to a walk along the path to eternal life. I mean, the synoptic gospels, right? The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they tend to focus on the life of the kingdom that lies ahead at the end of the journey. The telos is the word. It's it's the end, the purpose of of a well-lived life of faith that is granted as a gift and a promise of our Lord. That's what eternal life is. It is a guaranteed promise to the faithful. We don't have eternal life in the moment, even though it's been granted when we possess it, when we actually are granted it, it's at the end of this faithful journey with our Lord. That's what Jesus is changing this young man's perspective on. It's not something you can possess now. It's not something you can buy on your own now and just hold like all of your other wealth. You you enter eternal life. You don't possess it. That's a key change that Jesus is teaching here. I mean, this young man had the wrong approach. And Jesus is a method here. Jesus is actually gentle here. He's gently redirecting this young man to understand how to enter into the life that he wants to possess. This young man should enter into life eternal by keeping the commandments. This road to eternal life is the commandments of God. That's the road that we follow. His word is the path, the road to eternal life. The keeping of the law requires 
what this young man's already doing, a continual kneeling before the Lord. It's a journey. Now let's look here at verses 18 through 19. Notice the young man's clarifying response. Here's what he says in 18. He says to him, which ones? Which ones? It, it does not seem from this young man's posture as he's kneeling before the Lord that he intended to handpick which commandments of the Lord to obey and not to obey. Instead, it seems that he wanted to ensure which of the commandments he should emphasize. I mean, the question to Jesus reveals the further tension, the stress that this young man was attempting to navigate. He was, he was, he was perhaps having a, a, a crisis of faith. And Jesus is trying to navigate him through this. Perhaps this is the root of why he was kneeling and asking before Jesus. I mean, he knows the law, but it seems so overwhelming. Which ones, Jesus, which one should I possess? Which one should I follow? And I think this idea of which ones exposes the limitation of legalism. The Mosaic law here followed by this young man was a legalistic approach. There's a limit because it's impossible to keep all of the laws. There's limitation to legalism. And so that's why this young man, I think his response is, which ones? So I don't waste my time on the ones that don't matter. That's legalism. There are too many commands to follow. Here's what Jesus says in verses 18 and 19. And Jesus said, here are the commandments that he wants him to follow. And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in this young man's mind, okay, those are easy. I do that. I mean, in pointing this young man to the practical commandments here, these are the commandments of the 10 that refer to human relations, plus one more in Leviticus 19, verse 18. The one that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, Jesus points to this one command. When we look at this, the response may seem to us, well, Jesus has just given him a list. But really here, Jesus does answer the young man's question because the young man says, which ones? And what Jesus is saying here, he's pointing out one command, not a list. He's pointing out the Decalogue. You know what the Decalogue is? It's the Ten Commandments. Seen as one unit, one command from God. Not necessarily ten separate ones. The idea of looking at the Ten Commandments, uh, Jesus is pointing out here, is one. The Ten Commandments are one commandment. Now, that's a deep thought for you. Because if we fall into the error of following the Ten Commandments the way this young man was doing, now we're, make, we're falling into legalism. Now we're making a list. Which ones do we keep? Which ones can we avoid? No, Jesus is pointing out one, the Decalogue. They're not scattered. Here's why we say this. The Ten Commandments are not scattered throughout all of the Mosaic Law or the prophets or the writings of the Old Testament. Instead, the Decalogue is one commandment. The Decalogue is honored by Jesus here. Jesus honors by singling out them as the commandment that when perfectly kept leads to eternal life. Yeah, look here in verses 20 and 21. He said, and here's the response. 
The young man said to him, all these I have kept. So even in his mind, he's thinking of a, a, a list. What do I still lack? He says. The closing verses here reveal the true nature of this man's identity and also the climax of this interaction with Jesus. Actually, the climax of the lesson are in verses 20 and 21. This young man, he, this synagogue ruler kept all of the commandments in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and from the Mosaic Law. I mean, particularly the summary of Leviticus 19, 18, where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the application of the Mosaic Law to others, the fulfillment of it. Now, Mark's account tells us that this young man said something different. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 20, Mark records, the young man said this, teacher, all things I have kept from my youth, emphasizing he's grown up with this. And so by keeping these commandments, this young man means that he has guarded or cherished them. That's the idea of keeping the commandments. He guarded the Ten Commandments, he guarded all the Mosaic Law. He cherished them by observing them. It's as if the Mosaic Law has always been his active identity. That's why he says there, I've kept all these from my youth. I have cherished these from my youth. I have guarded these from my youth. That's what he's meaning here. I mean, he cherished the law so much that he guarded its integrity as an active part of his very being. It's as if he says to Jesus that guarding the law, keeping the law is who I am. This is my identity and it's wrapped up in my actions of loving and cherishing the law. So to him, what more did he need? I mean, what was lacking? What more could he do to be more favored? What more could he do to have eternal life or guarantee his eternal life? That to possess it. Verse 21. Jesus says this. If you would be perfect. Underline that. I'm going to challenge you. Underline that. If you would be, that's Jesus' response. If you would be perfect. Now in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, Mark records this a little bit differently. Mark helps us to see Jesus' loving compassion in his final response here of if you would be perfect. Mark 10, 21 says, and Jesus looking upon him and loving him said to him. Here's where Jesus, he sees this young man struggle. He sees this young man's torment. He's trying to earn God's favor. He's trying to do what he must do in order to have what God says he must have. And Jesus sees the tension in his soul. Looking upon him and loving him, he said. But now only Matthew's account shares that Jesus says, if you would be perfect... I mean, again, Jesus knows the heart of this man's line of questioning, and he's guiding this discussion with this man to this point. Perfection is what the young man desired. It's kind of implied here in his inquiry. Perfection is what the young man desired, and Jesus responds, if you would be perfect. I mean, this young man's quest His journey for eternal life embodies the possession of eternal life. 
So would this not be the perfect life? If you had eternal life and you possessed it, wouldn't that be perfect? I mean, the perfect thing to accomplish. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, yet Jesus here, he speaks truth of the gospel that must not be overlooked and is truly the point of the entire passage. If you would be perfect. I mean, none of us are perfect. Anyone here claim to be perfect? Good. Because if you claim to be perfect, you're actually showing your imperfection by lying. See the point? I mean, none of us are perfect. I mean, perfect here, the Greek word is teleos. It, it's, it's actually, it's, it's really to mean to be mature, to be complete, to be full. I mean, it's the idea expressed in James chapter 1. If you want to flip over there. Back in the summer on Wednesday nights, we went through the book of James, and this may be something that most of you who are here will remember. And I think the same idea is important here as we understand Jesus' interaction with this young man. In James chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, James introduces the ongoing theme here throughout his epistle of perfection, the perfect law. Here's what he says in verse 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which means patience or endurance. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be what? Perfect and complete. Lacking nothing. Can you see this same idea here that Jesus is teaching this young man? This is where I think James is learning the lesson. He's, James was Jesus' brother. He heard this teaching from Jesus often, and he shares this main theme of the gospel, very important theme of the gospel in his epistle. The idea of teleos, perfection, is it's a repeated theme in James' epistle. He says he talks about it seven times. And this perfection that Jesus expects of those who enter eternal life is explained to us here. And it's explained by, to, by us by James to be obtained through suffering and patience. You see the contrast here with this young man? This, young, this rich young man was not patient. He did not want to suffer. He, he was not used to that. Patient suffering and endurance as our Lord perfects us is the theme of James. I think it's the same thing that Jesus wants to teach this young man. I mean, it's a level of maturity in the faith. Not that we obtain maturity out of old age, but maturity in learning to trust our Lord's will, our Lord's salvation for us. We have to continually learn how to trust that. We're growing in the faith to maturity. That's the idea of perfection we're talking about. It is a fullness of God's grace in us, making us complete in his grace. This wealthy young man in Matthew 19 lacked patience to obtain what he lacked. His patient endurance of trusting the Lord was missing. He was knowledgeable of the law for certain. He was privileged with his wealth and position in the community, but he lacked maturity because he did not fully grasp the full meaning of the law. He this young man who completely and perfectly fulfilled his law, he was, this young man was standing before the one who did perfect the law. Jesus 
was complete and perfect, fulfilling the law. And this young man stood before him and this young man could not see it. That's what Jesus is trying to teach him. In James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, the idea continues. James says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Notice what the young man does with Jesus after Jesus tells him the truth. He walks away. And what James tells us here is that anyone who hears the word and is not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at himself in the mirror and he looks at himself and he goes away because that's what he loves. And he forgets what he was like. I mean, the words of James here further clarifies for us what Jesus intended for this young man of wealth and honor to understand in Matthew 19. First, anyone who hears the word of God but does not fully obey or do or live out the truth of that word only looks at himself in the mirror. That's why you're not following. It's because you're continually looking upon yourself. Even though you've seen the truth, heard the truth, the only thing that you're looking at is yourself. This young man seems, sees himself in his keeping of the law. That's all he could see. The result is that after admiring his religious piety in the mirror, he can walk away with no shame. He can walk away and go about his life as if the truth of the word of God had no effect on him. Because what else does he need? He's got himself. The law of this world, not the law of God's word. Remember, the law of this world guides his steps away from the perfect law of God. I mean, now, secondly, what we see here in James 1, 22 and 25 is this, that anyone who looks into the perfect law is not looking to himself, but to what is perfect. Do you see the contrast? The one who looks into the perfect law, they're looking into the law of liberty. That's what's mentioned here. And the meaning of the law of liberty is the full meaning of the law of the Mosaic law, the full meaning of God's word. And in doing so, the one who honestly looks into the perfect law can forget that he cannot forget. You cannot forget. When you hear the perfect law, when you see the perfect law, you have no choice but to listen because you cannot forget what you just heard. You cannot forget what commands guide you to enter eternal life. But if you see this eternal life as just something else you possess, all you're going to see is yourself. What more can I get? And you're going to be blinded to the truth that stands right in front of you. I mean, the law of God must then be perfectly and be maturing in the hearer as an active participant. In other words, what, what we see here is in order to be perfected, to be matured in the faith, we also have to be an active participant in that faith, but that active participation is a continuing participation of humility and brokenness and, and submission before the Lord, kneeling constantly in dependence upon our Lord. 
All of this leading to the gift of salvation and the gift of eternal life because the gift of salvation is not earned. The gift of salvation is granted. And we enter into it. It's not something we possess. That's what this young man's problem was. He couldn't grasp that. But now notice here in Matthew 19, verse 21, let's continue here what he's talking about. Notice how Jesus commands this young man to be perfect. Enter into this journey of perfection, young man. Enter into this journey of maturing in the faith. Here's here's how Jesus tells him, if you would be perfect, then sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Notice that? Jesus knew exactly what this young man was dealing with. While this verse in 21 does indicate that this young man's wealth was a hindrance to his perfection. I think that's true. This young man's wealth hindered his perfection. And it does not teach us that material wealth is inherently evil, though. Instead, Jesus saw clearly that this young man's immaturity was because he struggled to release his security blanket, his binky, if you will, you know, the pacifier. I mean, Jesus' encounter with this young man of means is a practical illustration of his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. We see this in verses 23 through 24. Here's what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 of Matthew. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves where, what? Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's echoing this same idea here, and actually showing in a practical situation with this young man, this lesson. Then again, in Matthew chapter 12, 35, Jesus speaks about treasure as well that comes from the good heart. Here's what he says in Matthew 12, 35. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And so what he says here in Matthew 19, 21, sell what you possess and give to the poor and what you will have treasure in heaven. That's what this young man was desiring. And Jesus makes a real clear point. Your treasure is not in heaven. Your treasure is in your heart in your possessions, what you own, what you do. That's your treasure. And if that's your treasure, there's no more room for me. So you need to sell all that stuff. That's holding you back. Look here in verse 22, and look at how this young man responds. This final reaction of this young man seems to be Jesus' offer. I have given you the gift that this young man desired in verse 16, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus, he's guiding this young man through the truth here. He guides this young man to see eternal life, not as a possession, but as something he enters into Christ with. He enters into Christ's suffering and he enters into Christ's endurance. But here's what it says in 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I think we can see in this final verse, 
Jesus' knowledge of the hearts of all people. I mean, we do not see Jesus categorically canceling out this young man's eternal future. We don't see Jesus doing that. What we do see is Jesus' wisdom of how this young man uh, saw the kingdom, how he saw the law, and the reaction of this young man is what we see. He's sealing his own fate. He's sealing his own eternal destiny. I mean, Jesus does give this young man freedom to be responsible for what he just heard. Yet I'm convinced that Jesus knew the outcome anyway. I mean, it was too much for this immature man. Here's the interesting thing. The immaturity of this young man in contrast to the perfection and the maturity of the gospel. I mean, this young man was so immature in, in, in the faith, it was too much for him to sell his great possessions to abandon his wealth, he could never bring himself to believe what Jesus was saying. I mean, just as the lessons of the truth run throughout Scripture, so too does the truth of this man's rejection of the gospel. I mean, it's a tragedy that too many, actually I want to say the majority of human beings, reject the difficult demands of obedience to Jesus Christ. The majority of human beings reject the demands of the faith because we have taught them erroneously that faith is simple and easy. How many of us who have walked with Christ for any length of time know that that is impossibly false? I mean, it's walking with Christ is not easy. That's why we have to depend on him every single day. And this young man, his rejection here shows not that Jesus himself condemns him. This young man condemns himself. I mean, it's a tragedy here. Too many find the journey to eternal life too demanding, not that they cannot enter eternal earned eternal life. I mean, most people want to earn it. Most people want to guarantee it. And they don't want to go along the journey with Christ and his suffering and his endurance. As he says, here is the gift I give you. I mean, this is the universal truth for everyone. But too many cannot handle the demands of humility and sacrifice of a fellow sufferer with our Lord. Too many have a problem with that. And we don't see just this young man rejecting the Lord. I mean, this is another truth that we see scattered throughout the Gospels. John chapter 6 helps us see something else here as well. Turn with me, if you want, to John chapter 6. We're going to close with this. Here's another time where many disciples could not follow the Lord. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69 tells us, of a great crowd of disciples who followed Jesus across the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum after Jesus' greatest miracle of feeding 5,000. These disciples wanted another free meal, and Jesus pointed out the truth of their hearts. He presented himself to them as the bread of life that they desired, that they craved. And John's account, verses 60 through 69, says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? 
Now, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have what? The words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Isn't that what this rich young ruler was wrestling with? Yeah, even here in this context, as Jesus is speaking the truth to many of his disciples after the, one of his greatest, the greatest miracle that he has, they still struggled with how hard the truth of the gospel was. Verse 60 in John 6, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And what have we done in the church? We have taken the difficulty of the gospel and, and simplified it so much and dumbed it down so much that we have actually taken Jesus out of the whole mix and we've taken out the, the sacrifice of self out of the whole mix and we've said, you don't have to sacrifice anything. Jesus has sacrificed it all for you. Now he has, that's true, but Jesus also expects us to sacrifice ourselves to walk right alongside him as he brings us and and allows us to enter into eternal life with him. And this young man that we see in Matthew 19 couldn't do it. There's a human responsibility, folks, to the gospel. And what Jesus says here in John chapter 6 is true. No one comes to the Father unless he grants it. Yet too many that I've even heard this from folks. Well, if G, I'm waiting on God to grant me eternal life, and if He won't grant me eternal life, I'm not at fault. Anybody heard that one? There's a human responsibility to how we follow the truth that is right in front of us. So, how do we take this passage home? Are we too willing to hold on to our security blankets? How many of us have a pacifier that we cannot get rid of? Only one person in the room is man enough to say that he has a pacifier. You hearing that? How many of us are too willing to hold on to our security blankets, our worldly comforts over the harsh realities of, of obedience to the gospel? Obedience to Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do we call him Lord? Then do we obey him or do we hold on to our pacifiers? I mean, Jesus himself suffered many things for our eternal security. Yet too many of us look for the greasy grace or the easy believism that tickles our ears and brings us security and hope in our own free will efforts to do good. I mean, the, in, the interaction by this young man with the king of the universe shows us that eternal life is not easy to obtain. 
Matter of fact, it's impossible to obtain. We don't possess eternal life. We enter it. Yet we look at eternal life as something for me that I own, that I grasp, that I possess. You ever seen a child possess a favorite toy? They're immature in it, aren't they? This is mine. They sound like, what's that young, what's that creature in the Lord of the Rings? Gollum. When we want to possess something, our sin comes out. And if we want, if we look at eternal life as something we possess, we are looking at it from a sinful heart. We don't possess what God gives us. We enter it. That'll keep you awake at night. But think about this. Eternal life is this journey with Christ. It's the goal by which we long to end as we walk with him, as he carries us along in his suffering. This road to perfection that Jesus commands this young man to have is the road of pruning and of shaping and of trusting and of suffering and of breaking. I mean, the verses following what we're seeing here in Matthew 19, we're going to look at next week. Because if I keep going, y'all are going to be mad at me. I mean, the verses that we're going to look at next week is, is the theme of worldly possessions and how the rich entering the kingdom of heaven is a deeper understanding and a problem for many. It's more difficult for those who possess much because they have much to release. Because the disciples asked the question following here, who then can be saved, Jesus? I mean, it's obvious that this rich young man, this young ruler of the synagogue, could not save himself. Absolutely. Because the commandment that he sought of eternal life turned out to be too hard to bear. So what burden is holding you back? from fully embracing Christ Jesus and his gift of salvation, his gift of eternal life. What what burden, what possession, and I'm being a little sarcastic, but it makes the point, doesn't it? What security blanket, what pacifier are you refusing to give up because you don't want to mature in the faith and trust our Lord? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. I also thank you, Lord, that in in this encounter with this young man, Jesus is actually showing compassion. He's loving this young man and trying to show him the truth. He's trying to show him the answer to his question. And this young man is too burdened to see the answer. God, as I listen to your word, breaks me to see that someone who had such great potential that Jesus sees with great potential could not follow. And I know it broke you. And it broke our Savior. And God, we have so many people we know now that breaks our heart. We tell them the truth. We show them the word. We show them the gospel. And Lord, they reject. God, forgive us. Even those of us who follow you, we reject so much of what you expect. And so, God, there is a responsibility that you have given your people. We don't earn this grace, but, Lord, when you give it to us, we obey. 
And God, I pray for your mercy. I pray for your, your love and your compassion on those who are struggling with this gift of eternal life, this gift of salvation that Jesus himself earned on our behalf. He, he paid the cost for our guilt. And we reject it. And dear God, as we say here at the end of this time of hearing your word, as at the end of our worship, dear God, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts and reveal to us whether we are walking with your son to perfection or are we not? What is it, Lord, that is hindering our embrace of this gift of salvation? What is it that is hindering this our walk with your son and to this point of faith that is growing and growing and perfecting and maturing. Lord, help us not to stay immature. Help us to grow and give us the strength to suffer along with your son. Lord, whatever it is in our hearts, whatever it is in our lives that we love more than your son, Jesus Christ, I pray God you would remove it. No matter how hard it hurts, Lord, remove it. Because the treasure in heaven is much more valuable. So, God, as we close here today, as we close with one more hymn, I pray, dear God, that you would soften the hearts of those whose heart is so hard that they are so much, they're, they're grasping their possessions or their grasping, whatever their security is so tightly that they won't let go. Lord, will you gently remove their fingers? Will you gently pull their grasp away from whatever it is they're holding on to? And dear God, will you look them lovingly in their heart and say, I love you. Come with me. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.